Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders across different sectors every week. All episodes are available at ageofpersonalization.com, where you will find more content about leadership, strategy, and innovation. So if you relate with our content, please join our movement and help us spread the word. Our guest this week is Brad Williams, president of El Centro Campus at Dallas College. Brad also served as the president at Oklahoma State University, and his passions involve communications, marketing, and music. In fact, today we'll talk about how his childhood, music, and football has influenced his thought leadership and why he believes that we need to have a close relationship with our students to communicate effectively. We'll also talk about helping people be comfortable with failure and how to deliver solutions with limited resources. Finally, we'll discuss how technology can augment, not replace, one's guide in pursuit of their own truth. Now, before we get started, hit the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis so that you can be in touch and updated with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you, guys. Great, great. Well, Brad, you previously shared with me the following, and I quote, we can all develop an exhaustive list of needs that would deliver perfect solutions or a perfect solution within a perfect amount of time. However, the trick is to to deliver a context-specific solution with the resources you have. You know, it's a professional win to cross an imagined finish line alongside staff who are no longer afraid of failing or being judged. So, Brad, as the contextual collaborator, what is a context-specific solution? Yeah. All right. So so here's kind of where that comes from, because we are all a product of our past experience, right? And so in high school, um, I lived in a small town, probably less than a thousand people on a good day uh, and played high school football. And we were class A, which is the smallest of the small. And so on our team of of 15 or 20 people, I was probably the biggest guy on the team in ringing wet at about 185 pounds. And I was a lineman on that. And so what happens in that situation is night after night, you just get crushed. Uh, and and what, what that then teaches you to do is realize that there's a whole lot of people in the stands watching. One, you can't lay down. And two, if you can't match people for strength, you got to figure out how to be scrappy. And that's where we came from. How do you use the talent that you have to accomplish a goal when you really realize that you're outmatched, underskilled, under-talented, but you know you have to perform? And so really, though, 
after about four years of, uh, of, of seasons that were less than stellar. And when I say that, we're talking about scores at 60 to nothing at halftime, right? And, and I can't tell you how many times hearing the same opposing schools school song time after time when, when it's raining and pouring, you're getting just crushed, what that does to you. And that creates kind of the spirit then of how can we make these things happen and come together in a way when really, again, like I said, we're outmatched, outgunned, uh, but we got a whole lot of people watching our performance unfold. And well, so that's, I think that's what's happening. Means. So, Brad, I think that's what's happening right now. There's yep. a lot of people all over the world, yep. all over the state of Texas, all over yep. society watching what is unfolding right before our eyes. So on that note, I mean, I can make the argument that uh, there's many people who thought that they had all the talent in the world that maybe uh, they're not so talented for the moment that we live in. So now that we're leading and dealing with so much experimentation as we work through and out of the pandemic and let alone the social unrest, why are we so afraid to fail? I mean, why is it? Yeah. So Here's some thoughts that I have on that and I appreciate the question. I think, I think anytime we talk about culture, whether it's corporate culture, organizational culture, community culture, there's a sense of how do histories and traditions define not only who we are, but how we think. And so what happens when we indoctrinate, hire and indoctrinate people into a culture, yes, it's important that, that people understand the histories and the traditions and how we think and how we move forward. But, but at the same time, that can be such a rigid device that then traps an entity into thinking the same way that it always has. So it's a self-perpetuating cycle in a way of, of we're bringing in people who looked and worked and behaved like us, but, but, but sometimes you need to dump a little chlorine in the pool in order for, for people to think a little bit different in order to meet the needs of, of how the world has changed. And, and so by that, I mean, there is a, a need for a spark of adrenaline in most organizations today uh, that encourage them to be a little bit free, a little bit uh, uh, incorporating calculated risk. We're not saying throw caution to the wind, but what we're saying is let's put some calculations on paper that guide our approach to risk and then let's move forward knowing, and this is Amazon 101, let's fail fast and fail forward. Uh, but whatever iteration comes out of this is going to be something that at least stretches us to be a different entity than maybe we were a week ago or a year ago. Well, on that note, why are then, then are we so, uh, and again, respectfully here, Brad, but th th this, this sense of failure and exposing one's uh, capacity or capabilities that were relevant in the past, but not necessarily in the present, uh, right. what, 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 what's the message to your peers in higher ed uh, yeah. around not fearing failure because it's inevitable? I mean, isn't, yeah. that the, the, isn't that the way forward in our desire to reinvent? Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's what I love about that question. At some point in our lives, uh, we stop telling people what our dreams are. And, mm -hmm. and, and by that, I mean, when you're young, oh, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be, um, you know, this profession or that. And, and there was a point in my own life because I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. It was easier for me to say, I want to go to medical school. 
Because when people would ask me, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a doctor. That shuts that conversation down because mm -hmm. then people understand the context of what a doctor is. They understand what the path looks like. And they're like, oh, yeah, that, there's a level of prestige there. And OK, I get it. If I were to say I want to be a script writer for a film, then all of a sudden the questions start, well, you can't do that from here. Why do you want to do that? Do you understand how hard or difficult the industry is to enter? And before you know it, people stop talking about their dreams. And so what happens over time then is you have people collectively in society, and this is why I love the outliers uh, and have tried to raise two of my own outliers and my children, of uh, be a little bit different, of don't be afraid to tell other people your dreams. But, what, but what's happened, though, is when we talk about something that's a little bit different that we want to do, all of a sudden we get judged for it. The moment I get judged for it, I stop talking about it. Years go by, and the next thing you know, I fall in line with everyone else versus the ability to talk about what I want out of life. And, and here's, here's where this comes from for me. I was raised in a funeral home. My parents had a funeral home. We ran the ambulance service. We answered the fire phone. I've seen death served in about any way you can serve it up. And the only certainty that I have is that I can get through the next 20 minutes, maybe, maybe the rest of the day, maybe the rest of the week. But what that does is it teaches you to stop thinking necessarily about what does the next five or 10 years look like? But it really teaches you to be present. And to be present then acknowledges the role that each of us have when we share a space, what each of us bring to that space in terms of contribution. And then it acknowledges and begs the question, how can we all make magic happen in this space with what we have today? Not tomorrow, but today. And so when you start looking at the type of thinking that is required to process how we live in today while building something greater than us for the future. But yet I'm challenging myself to use a mind that's been so locked into a rigid hierarchy and bureaucracy of an organization. Sometimes it's hard to reconcile those two different sides of the brain, right? You're asking me to think different and do different and be different, but yet I've been taught to stay in my lane my entire life. And now you're asking me to be different. So that's where it comes, uh, comes into place. It's very important to help people be comfortable with failure because they've been judged forever for it. Right? Well, and so what we're basically saying in this pursuit of unity, that uh, authenticity is important, but yet we don't provide the conditions for you to be authentic. So can we find unity? Right. So, but doesn't that, isn't that what standardization is? It is how can I scale something to size that can address the needs of the greatest number of people? And what you miss then is you level out that bell curve to, to, to whatever that middle role is, rather than creating on-ramps and off-ramps for everybody along that way. Now, what that requires, though, and what we're trying to experiment with uh, my prior job and even a little here is the technological side to how can technology not replace that, but augment it so that when I get on to like a, an application where I can pick the songs I want, then there's some algorithms behind there that then can help guide me in my pursuit of my own truth and my own direction that I want to go. And, and technology is supporter of that. Uh, but but it, the more you read about algorithms, sometimes those very algorithms can be similar to the th same kind of trappings that then trap us in the same type of thinking. So 
for example, when I go into amazon.com and it gives me the other five books that I should read based on an algorithm, oftentimes I'm looking for that 300th book that encourages me to read because at that point it's showing me something truly different than the books that are very, very close to what I just bought, right? Because if you're truly on a path for mind blown thinking, you're not looking for the five business books that everybody else has bought. You're looking for a book about how crows solve experiments and how crows as birds solve problems and trying to morph that into like this biomimicry role of how biology inspired design is changing the way we think. That is how we solve problems now, taking everything into account versus what's the easiest for me as an organization to manage as I try to deliver a complex layer of products or programs to the person I'm trying to serve. Now, isn't this all about creating relevant communities, Brad? I mean, this yeah, is something that you're committed towards. Yeah, help yeah, us, help so us understand your thinking uh, with <laughs> how do we build relevant communities? Because it feels like we're in a in a society now with so many different communities. Um, we've created too many clusters of communities and built this sense of uh, of exclusivity rather than inclusivity. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so what my thoughts are there when I talk about building community and building relevant communities, uh, you know, I, I, I go back to my own experience when I think of, I was from a small town, very limited resources in the community in, in, in terms of support for school and other things. It was just, it was just small. I love that. That's what made me who I am today. Uh, but, it, but at the same time, there were some things that could have helped me in reflection if I had access to that, that could have made me even a different person than I am today. And it's hard to second guess, you know, because 2020 uh, in the rear view is, is one thing, but we don't always have that luxury. So for everything that made us um, good or bad, that's who we are today. So when I think about relevance, what I try to do is a core practice is I can look at all of the data points in the world as a indicator of of where we've been in the points that lead up to what that dashboard looks like today. But until I sit down with a group of students and get all inside of their routines and habits and, and why they get out of bed in the morning and try to chase what they wanna chase, that's when you learn how to be responsive to a community of people. And what I found is we may be so different in so many ways. And I've done a lot of international travel. I was an exchange student in high school uh, over to Japan, done a lot of work in China. Uh, the thing that I've learned is people are people uh, everywhere. And, and, and people want, you go back to Maslow's hierarchy, they want safety and security. They want, they want to shelter. They want to know that things are going to have some degree of certainty. Uh, and, and really, that's where we unify people around are those wrongs of themes that say, you know, all of us in life want the best for our families and our kids. So how do we get there? And when you knock the edges off of the extremes, that's really where we come to in the center, which is, um, can we not all acknowledge each other as human beings? Can we not all look out for our brother and our neighbor? And can we not all be a cheerleader for the one next to us as we're all just trying to figure out how to do life? And once you do that, everything else kind of falls into place or a type of flow, because then we've stopped worrying more about how I'm served in this, but really how I marshal resources in a way that help people where they want to get to. So going back to the funeral home example, my day is to help as many people as I can by five o'clock and we'll reset the counter tomorrow. Uh, and, and living like that 
I still am able to have a long-term strategy and approach to life, but it really makes you center your mind on what's important today and the struggles that people may have today or the opportunities they may have today yeah. and the ways that I can impact that. So, so Brad, and then I'm going to come to you, Scott, after this question, but so Brad, we, in our, in our, uh, in preparing for our, our time today, you know, we talked that uh, these forces of standardization and personalization, yeah. um, unfortunately they're operating in the extremes, uh, but yet, these are the forces that need to, uh, they're complementary forces. They need each other. How are we going to move from extremes to some level of coexistence with these forces? What do you think, Brad? Yeah, you know, here's, here's what I think when I think about standardization. When I get an email to me that says, hey, Brad, great to see, great to, uh, to see you. I hope things are well. And uh, and I know deep down that that was generated through a third party system, right? Because we're, we're starting to see that. So there's a there's a uh, and I don't want to try to coin the word, but there's a forced authenticity, if that's a word or, or it's yeah. kind of pretend or this make believe. Right. Where where I, where I think, wow, that's great. Somebody hand wrote me a letter. But the time I lick my thumb and check the ink, that's a print job that was done two weeks ago and sent to me via mail. Right. So I'm like, wait. You had me at first, but now I just got played. Is this real or is it not? So what that sends us all searching for, I think, is what are the truly authentic ways that we can interact and impact one another? And, and there is no substitute at all for human interaction and, and time. And so what it comes down to is where I give my time matters. And so just like this forum today where we're talking about how do we change the world, or whether it's a student in the hallway or a faculty member. And I was on the phone this morning with a team of administrative assistants giving my time to trade ideas with them on how to make the world better. Because this is a group of people who are absolutely the glue that holds an organization together. And if I'm not investing time in those human beings, then that is a force of nature within an organization that feels, um, you know, like they're not being, uh, taken care of or loved or maintained or what, whatever that may be. And that's where I spend my time. So if you end up spending your time in enough instances like that, and then the magnifying or amplifying effect of each one of those spending their 30 minutes of time with other people, all of a sudden we've created this level of human interconnectedness and a chaos of automation, technology, and complexity uh, that that somehow then circles back because we're all doing it out of the goodness of what is right and what is a, is a maybe a fifth force as part of what you referenced, which is this, the whole, this gestalt, the whole is better or greater than the parts and, and one plus one does equal four or five or six at that point. And so that's the, where those small investments of time and human interactions make important, uh, are important steps in, in the whole. So, so Scott, where are we now? What, what, what message is Brad delivering? underneath the words he has shared? Um, wow. A lot of them, but very efficiently the, a lot in alignment, Brad. Like, I'm pretty excited. As a matter of fact, one of my best bits of advice to myself right now would probably be to shut up and ask you to talk more. <laughs> um, so I'm going to keep this a little bit brief. I, I'm, I'm stewing on something that I think I see bigger about sort of your own pattern and what, what, what that might teach us about how you came to be this contextual collaborator. But maybe what I'll just add in terms of an observation, Glenn, <clears throat> about this contextual collaborator is that um, I love it. It's 
your, your basic approach, right, is you're trying to help people to see something and to be something bigger than themselves. And I'm working out as to how that became <laughs> you because I can, I, I'm starting to see that path. So I'll save that for a minute. But what maybe I'll do is I'll throw back a question to you about the contextual collaborator who's trying to get people to see something bigger than themselves. And I'm thinking about, you know, for example, your specific job as well as your family. You know, with your job, you're trying to create and you do create an inclusive place where like you're talking to administrative assistants and bringing them on board. You're talking to your kids, trying to train the outliers. Um, are we trying to create like, um, are we trying to create a whole system of contextual collaborators? Or is this, are you just an important unique cell amongst many other cells and we need different types of people. I'm curious as to whether your leadership is something that needs to be meta and we need you at meta levels because I'm trying to think, how do I convince the person like in the registrar's office for higher ed, right? Or the person in, I don't know, financial aid in a crisis moment, how can I convince them while their dumpsters on fire to belong to something bigger? Um, what is it? What tricks do you use to to bring people out of? No, my system has collapsed. I'm I I me me me. My stuff, my stuff, my stuff. Help, help, help. How do you get them out of that? Because I can I can kind of see a way out, but I I need to hear it from you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, thanks for that. And I'll tell you I'll tell you how. Um, one of the I'm going to say benefits, but it's not a benefit. One of the things that comes from being raised in a pure home and ambulance service and all the above is um, you learn to step back and laugh at life. Um, what you see is you see, and it gives you perspective. You see people survive accidents where they should have been killed. Uh, you see people killed in accidents where that should never have happened, right? And so you really learn to step back and realize that each breath of air is its own little magical island in each moment of the day. So in college, I was a music major. I started as a piano performance major in, in college and then realized that if I wanted to be able to eat someday, um, that, that I wanted, I needed to rethink that. My other problem, though, is I had incredible performance anxiety. I could not step up in front of an audience and play a sheet of meat. I mean, it was good. I won some I was on scholarship, full scholarship. <clears throat> but then I realized that I had no problem doing that when it came to public speaking. And what I realized was if I sat down in front of a piece of sheet music, everyone there in the audience knew exactly what it was supposed to sound like when it went bad and what the issues were with how it was played. But on public speaking, as long as I had a direction, there was nobody that knew what was about to come out of, uh, of my mouth. And so it gave me some freedom then a little, uh, it's like improv, right? Uh, so yeah. in, in, in that, but here's how I, here's how I figured life out is I always try to relate things back to music in music. And many of your audiences members may, may have backgrounds in that or as well as you guys. But when you look at a musical chord, there's always three notes that compose that. And so I had a music theory teacher who is a nuclear physicist who said, you know, before he taught theory, he worked uh, in a lab in, in New Mexico. He said, I was sitting there one day, I was listening to the fluorescent lights. And I said, that's a C sharp. And he said, I had perfect pitch so I could tell what the vibration and the frequency was and all of that. And so now he teaches, uh, he, he teaches music theory. And why, why this is important is, the world has natural order and frequency to it. And I know that sounds a little bit weird. So, so when you look at chords and harmonies, I always look for how the thirds fit. You get one, three, and five, that makes up a chord. 
So if I know that a program exists or a problem exists, then I'm going to already look for what is the third and the fifth to that, whether it stacks on top of it. There are natural harmonies, natural orders, natural relationships. So if I understand and think that there's a common theme or an issue that is, is moving along or there's some issue in the community, I'm looking for the other two things that I know should follow that. Because again, that's a natural order of how things impact other things. So when I, when I talk to people across the organization and their dumpsters on fire with a certain issue, Going back to the funeral story, I step them back and, and make sure they have a little bit of perspective on the issue as a whole. And sometimes that question is me asking them, I know that your file system messed up and you lost a lot of records, but let's ask this question. Is anyone bleeding? Is anyone dying? And when that answer yeah. is no, that is a totally different perspective of, oh, this is all right. It's like a pinch yourself into a reality of, oh, yeah, that's right. That we're not. We're not doing surgery here today. Uh, we just had a little misstep. So let's get back into it. And then it's remembering or reminding people that, all right, now that we've kind of gotten past the anxiety of the day, let's focus on this. There are people below you who are counting on your position and your function to operate. There are people above you that are counting on your position to operate and a function. So you have to look at how your individual role, as small or as big as it is, impacts the one ahead and impacts the one behind. And once you realize that you're, one, not bleeding or dying because of a mistake, and then two, you're such a unique part of an overall process that gets to add some tremendous value to people in some special way, you realize that, that the sun will come out tomorrow, and then you realize that your job does have their, uh, merit and your job does have purpose as it contributes to a much greater something. And once wow. you get people out of themselves and onto the service of, of helping other people, all of a sudden the dumpster fire, we step back and laugh at it. Okay, let's pick it up and move on, right? What were we doing anyway? Let's, let's fix it and, and, and learn from it and go ahead. So, so, Scott, if I can jump in here and Brad, so if what you're saying is true, which I'm a believer in, why is it that in the search for natural relationships, most of our relationships feel completely unnatural. I mean, how did we get to this point where what used to feel real and natural feels awkward now? Because I know that a lot of the relationships I have, they're, they're still real, but yeah. Sometimes I wonder if they are. What, yeah. What's happened, Brad? Yeah. I and tell you what's it, happening. It, it, it's a bigger question. Yeah. Number one, what's happened? And number two, what's the role in leadership to help us figure all this out? I'm going big with you yeah. because uh -huh. I know you've got your PhD in leadership. So oh, I know yeah. you've got a perspective on this. Yeah. No, and it's and the perspective's not tied to that. The perspective's <laughs> this. And and I don't know if you guys have electric guitar or or are a fan of hard rock music. Okay, so he's got it. Okay, so I'm gonna ask you this, Scott. How many distortion pedals do you have with your guitar? I'll be honest, I have only one. Okay. But but I'm a weird man. Okay. All right. So <laughs> this is why I love acoustic. I like the old uh Mexican flamenco guitar. I love that kind of sound and feel. But here's why I bring this up. If you look at any any musician uh, that, that likes to really push the envelope, they may have, if you look on a concert venue, a floor full of eight to 10 pedals. Each pedal has its own distortion. Each, each pedal does its own kind of thing. 
and what I'm, what I'm saying, I, I believe that we in today's world are no different than that rock guitarist with eight different distortion pedals. And what happens then is we're using our feet, clicking so many different distortions of who we are as people. I don't know who you are anymore. So what the goal then becomes is can we not just shave back the distortion a little bit so I can get to know who you are without the noise around it? And once I then understand how to communicate with you and help you, I'm then talking to you versus filtered through three layers of distortion that you've created and that I've created. So what happens is we're both talking to each other through a lens that isn't even our authentic self. You know, if, if you back in my old communication classes and when you talk about conversations, there's like who I am, who you are, who I think I am to you, who you think you are to you, who we are together. There's like eight different people in a conversation based on all, all those perceptions. And so we end up talking to each other and treating each other in a way that's really based on an inauthentic distortion of who we are and who we project versus who we may really be. So I just try to strip that out by being a, uh, a little bit of an outlier. Uh, you know, I'm not afraid to raise my, raise my freak flag on what people think I am or what I do or not, don't care. Uh, because the faster we can kind of peel those layers back, the faster I can know who you are and what you're about and how we get you where you need to go. Because when you go back to those funeral stories on how short life is, I don't have time and you don't have time to spend 20 years of your life being something that you're not. Now, what usually happens there is we wake up when we're 50 or 60 with a whole bunch of regret. Uh, so peeling that away allows us to have a conversation. And uh, that becomes where the art of leadership steps in, because you have to be willing to be super vulnerable uh, to talk about who you are, where you came from, what you want out of life mm. in order for people to return that to you. And if you're not, they're going to return the same fakeness and in, in authenticity or however you'd say that as, uh, as yeah. what you return to them, right? Because we're mirrors of one another. So yeah. if my mirror is being real and open to you guys today, then that's the real and openness that I'm going to get back. Well, and this probably explains uh, why you've been successful in higher education. Yeah. So, so, so Brad, as we, you know, get closer, as we, Get near the close of our discussion today. What wisdom can you share with your peers yeah. about what they should be thinking about as a leader during this time of tremendous transformation and change that, quite candidly, uh, can be overwhelming? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a. I, I'll, I'll answer that with a story. So I, I was young in my career in higher education and met this guy who'd worked for a state regents office in Oklahoma, and I said, "Man, that's great." How did you get there? That's a pathway that I may want to take. And he stopped me and he's because he was nearing retirement. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. The very reason that you get into these jobs is to interact with students in some ways mm. that blow your mind. But by the time you then climb that ladder to a leadership position, you start to lose that interaction with students because it's more of an administrative uh, kind of function. So what I challenge people is, is I appreciate the fact that I get access to data dashboards that tell me everything about what's happening on campus. But until I go sit down with a student one-on-one, -on -one, and you can't contract that out, you can't ask a, an assistant to go do it, you have to live in that space and ask those questions. But by the time you realize that some student that you can't understand why they're not being successful in your organization, 
but they're working two jobs taking care of their siblings while trying to take care of a grandparent who's also living in the house. Meanwhile, mom and dad are struggling trying to to keep a job or maybe they've lost one and you you have no data point that wraps all that into a single piece and says, but here's what happens in life. You know, I can create all the best retention and completion strategies in the world, but if they don't acknowledge that some kid can't get a new tire for his back, t- uh, you know, the back tire of his car to get to school on time. Meanwhile, he's dropping his little sister off at school at seven o'clock and they've been up till midnight the night before uh, because their 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 gas is out in their house, or or they've been evicted from somewhere. That's what we fail, and then we wonder why people are not interacting with the system that we designed. Uh, why why they're struggling with that? We're using language in higher education that people oftentimes don't understand. So we talk about you know, have you gotten your financial aid or the FAFSA done? Most people are like, what is what is a FAFSA and what is financial aid? You know, the rest of the world says, how are you going to pay for this and how are you going to finance it? You know, so when we talk about free application for federal student aid, how do we break down the jargon in a way to where we're not requiring people to step foot on our property and put on a Google translator in order to understand how to interact with the system? So breaking all of those things down then helps people understand how to interact and how we've been designed with human or student-centered design uh, to help people kind of figure out how to navigate a system. Uh, it's not hard, but but we've made it difficult over time, just as uh, as many organizations have. Scott, closing comments. Music, you are a metaphor maestro. That's what you are. <laughs> and I can see how the music built, like the music was the one piece I wasn't getting and it completed yeah. this for me, yeah. um, Brad, because, because as a musician, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly being multiple people at the same time. You're the performer, you're the composer, you're reflecting the composer, you're reflecting the listener. You might even be playing with other people or at right. least other environments. So you're constantly right. in context and adjusting. So right. I can kind of see it. And what I've seen is that that musical background of, of constant adjustment and, and yep. being conscious of multiple levels at the same time, it's what makes you a metaphor maestro because ultimately, Wherever I look at your life pattern, what I can see is this beautiful story. Just all the dots are right in the line. You went, you basically are teaching us not to think about losing, but to be thinking about being lost. And that losing is where we, what we fear, but being lost is how we escape. And let me just put it this way. Football. I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. And apart from one or two seasons in my entire lifetime, that's a really tough thing. And I learned to lose not by playing, but by watching and hoping and knowing it's never going to work out. And I think that had good character benefits for me. And I can see why, because I can see your story too. Ultimately, you learn to lose at an early age, both in a football team and even watching your parents and your family business, watching other people lose. Now, here's the deal. You had a choice, but not a lot of them as a football player or as a son of a funeral director. Right. You could be part of losing all the time. Right. Or you could think about it. And as you always say, expand the binaries, escape the binaries. This isn't about winning or losing. As a matter of fact, um, I'm losing. I'm not going to win. So why would I even play a win-lose game? Escape the binary. So what you did is you went over here. Football isn't a game about winning and losing. And what you did is you found another way to, to make that work. You did the same thing with your family. You've done the same thing with your career. You do the same thing with music. So here's what I'm thinking, my dear contextual collaborator, metaphorical maestro. 
right? You boiled down to an excellent teacher of impermanence without telling us about it and without scaring the hell out of people in terms of talking about death. Because an impermanence, what you're helping us to recognize is when we're facing big questions, dumpster fires, or even personal crises, Right. What you're reminding us to do, contextual um, uh, 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 collaborator, is to yeah. make it bigger. Go bigger than yourself. Get right. bigger than yourself, and it's going to be okay. So, so the deal is, impermanence isn't about losing oneself. Yep. Yep. It's about being lost and finding something bigger. So whether it's this session, our company, <laughs> our career, our life, our memory of ourselves, or even our species or our planet. We need to focus not on losing it because we've already lost it. Exactly. We have to focus on embracing being lost because what you tell, taught me, metaphorical maestro, is if we escape the con- contemporary situation and think of it in different metaphors, in different ways, what we're going to do is we're going to realize this sense of loss is actually a sense of freedom. So thank you, Brad. That was awesome. You crushed it today. I want to hear more. No, no, so, so I want to just close by saying what I just heard from you, Scott, and what I've heard from Brad goes back to the antithesis of leadership in the age of personalization. Why is it so important? Because we live in a world where everyone has lost their identity and they lost it a long time ago, and now they're in search of reclaiming it. And the only way that we can reclaim it is to do what? Is to associate ourselves with many different types of people. It's to open ourselves up. It's to be vulnerable. It's to do what? Enable others to, uh, to a point where you start recognizing that everyone's got the same problems. They're just packaged differently. They're trying to solve the same things. They're just packaged differently. But in that pursuit of solving we can all help solve for our identities. Right. And this is what Brad has done so eloquently today uh-huh. is helped us understand, Scott, that we are in this journey to find ourselves again. Yeah, as part, as part of producing one of the greatest compositions the world has ever seen, going back to that music metaphor, because what we do is we're tying our jazz combo to the jazz combos and orchestra pieces that have come before us and by the time we're done you'll have a thousand years of human existence that that is uh, woven together in this way of how we interact with each other and that's what we're responsible for for our weave in this period of time and and we just we we want to step back um you know, even where we are from in 500 years and know that whoever's looking at this great tapestry sees a bright spot in time during this window where we are and realize, well done. Uh, and that's what we're after. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you were a gift today. Yeah. Scott, as always, powerful. And as we close every session, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thanks again. Thanks, Brad. Yep, thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, 
Change is merely substitution, not evolution.